What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Boy, a lot going on today. Dr. Mary Trump is going to be with us in just a moment. Can you help us understand how your uncle came so close to destroying democracy in America? We'll get to that in just a second. Also, my op-ed today, Dear Millennials, I'm sorry we didn't stop them. We'll talk about Republicans. Professor Richard Wolf is going to drop by. What is quantitative easing and why should I care? Or actually, it's quantitative tightening. That's what's going on right now. But first, on the line with us is Dr. Mary L. Trump, a PhD from the Derner Institute of Advanced Psychological Studies at Adelphi University. She's taught graduate courses in trauma, psychopathology, and developmental psychology. She writes a column on Substack called The Good in Us, to which I subscribe, and I highly recommend you do, too. Uh, she's host of the Mary Trump Show podcast on YouTube and author of the new book, The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal which follows her previous book about her uncle, Donald Trump, Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. Dr. Trump, Mary, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since we've talked, and I'm really glad you could join us again. Thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Tom. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you. What, in your opinion, I mean, you know your uncle probably better than anybody else, and you have the added advantage of a PhD in psychology, which I believe provides you with a lot of insights into human nature that many of the rest of us may lack. What should we expect if Donald Trump is indicted? <laughs> um, we should expect uh, a full-court press by him and everybody in his orbit to change the subject, muddy the waters, uh, deflect, project, cast blame on everybody from uh, you know the, the the lowliest of White House aides on up. Uh, he will not take it lying down, um, and he will engage everybody uh, who continues to be a hanger-on to do his bidding. And that's partially why we're here, right, Tom? I mean, yeah. Donald didn't do this by himself. He was enabled at every turn uh, from people in his inner circle, everybody in the executive branch, and almost the entirety of the Republican Party. So do you think he's going to be spraying his fire, as it were, at um, his 
his enemies uh, or what he views as the people who might have thwarted his efforts? I mean, even within his own circle, like Pat Cipollone, who was not on his side on this thing, uh, apparently. Or is he going to is he going to turn on the people who were with him? You know, the Jim Jordans and Marjorie Taylor Greens and whatnot, the, the people who essentially failed in pulling this thing mm -hmm. off. I think he's going to turn on everybody. I, uh, I think he's, as we've seen, his circle is getting smaller and smaller by the controversy. Uh, so I think there will be very few people left standing. Are there precedents in his life, in his history, that can inform us about this? This is one of the fascinating things about this moment. Um, we're, specula we're speculating, right? I mean, we... Mm -hmm. it, we hope he gets indicted. It will be shocking and unconscionable if he isn't, based on what we know now, and we'll find out more. But even at this point, Donald probably doesn't think that anything is going to happen, because nothing ever has. He's done terrible things for his entire life, and not once has he been held accountable. So there is no precedent for this. He, excuse me, he just canceled a, uh, pardon me, I <laughs> uh, inhaled wrong. Um, he just canceled a, a rally in North Carolina because he's got to testify in a, a deposition. I believe it's in New York. Um, how do you think that that's going to go? I mean, he, his, some of his previous deposition testimony has been extraordinarily damning, but it, it, it seems like nobody's ever followed up on any of it. Yeah, of course they haven't. Um, I, I, one of my favorite parts about that is that the people who bought tickets to his event aren't getting their money refunded. Um, but oh, really? Aside from that, wow. yeah. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> they go to the next one. Yeah, shocking. Um, I've, I've seen, I've actually sat in a deposition with Donald, or rather, sorry, he was deposed in a case of mine a couple of decades ago. I've seen other depositions he sat for, and they also tend to be extraordinarily dull, because for a man who has the greatest memory in the history of memories, he forgets everything. He says he doesn't know, he doesn't remember, he's not aware. So I don't expect him to give away anything, honestly. Right. Well, that's the, unfortunately. Yeah, that's the that or taking the fifth are basically the only two ways to avoid any kind of legal liability, I suppose. What do you think about his children? Uh, and 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 let's parse this at the individual level. You know, Don Jr. and Eric and, and Ivanka. How how are each of them responding to this, and how is he going to respond to them, particularly? The, the growing evidence that Ivanka wasn't quite with him, or was she, and she's just BSing us all? Yeah, I, the first thing we need to understand about those relationships, the, the relationships between Donald and his three oldest children, are that on the one hand, uh, they're entirely conditional, uh, which is a pretty awful thing to say about a, a parent's relationship with his children, and they're also entirely transactional. What I've seen with Ivanka is that she came down on the side of not going all in with Donald and his attempt to uh, overturn the government. She is trying to have it both ways. I don't think she can. Uh, if the one of the witnesses yesterday is to be believed, she committed perjury. But she also um, has been very quiet, and uh, I think Donnie... Uh, Donald's oldest son saw an opening there, and he, on the other hand, has has gone all in on supporting supporting Donald, lying for Donald, enabling Donald, and um, I think right now 
he is really the the only child that Donald believes he can count on. Eric doesn't seem to be that relevant, although I think he is trying to be uh, like Donnie in that regard. Mm -hmm. Is Eric as dumb, I realize it's not a clinical term, but is he as dumb as he appears? Yeah, but, you know, it's very interesting. I get asked this question a lot, who's the stupidest? And I still think it's Donnie. But um, there's very little daylight between the two. Yeah, interesting. Um, there, there's been some some murmurings about, uh, you know, obviously Ron DeSantis wants to run for president, and he's uh, Trump version 2.0 uh, in many regards, only smarter and more ruthless and more focused. Uh, and and I've seen speculation, and in fact, I've I've promulgated some of it myself. Although I'm getting less and less, uh, I, I think the probability are, is, is shrinking as Donald's, uh, Donald Sr.'s uh, uh, fortunes are shrinking. But uh, speculation that DeSantis could pick Don Jr. as his running mate. Uh, Don Jr., I believe, is running around the country right now doing rallies and stuff. I mean, he, he's, he's like behaving like a political candidate. Um, what do you think about the possibility that Don Jr. may have a future in politics, whether it's with DeSantis or in some other direction? I don't think he has any future in politics. Uh, the, the only reason Donald got where he got is because he has, although I hate using this word to describe him, it is true. He has charisma. He has the kind of charisma that doesn't appeal to me or you, but it clearly appeals to tens of millions of people in this country. Donnie doesn't have that. Um, he doesn't have uh, the connections. He doesn't have the 40 years of media propping him up. And, you know, his power is largely reflected power that he gets from Donald. Uh, if Donald weren't around, Donnie, nobody would have any interest in what Donnie says. And I also think that um, if if Donnie wanted to end his relationship with his father, it would be to work with Don, Ron DeSantis. Oh, yeah, good point. Um, is this uh, politics, is, is politics the most successful grift that Donald Trump has ever engaged in? I mean, you've been observing his grifts for, for your whole lifetime. You were the victim of one of his early ones. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of putting it, but I think you're right. Uh, just look at how much money has been raised off of the big lie, off of the insurrection, and uh, it's all fraud, or mostly fraud. Uh, based on actions he claimed he was going to take if people threw money at him, but then ultimately did not take. So the thing about this particular grift is uh, he, his, he has many more marks. You know, there's a couple hundred million of us uh, paying taxes that went directly into his coffer. And he it's sort of endless, and it, it costs him nothing. You know, there are no risks for him, or there weren't any, I should say, when he was in office. And so far as a potential candidate, there haven't been any. What is he raised? A quarter of a billion dollars? Yeah, three quarters uh, by it, some it, estimates. Uh, well, that's even more terrifying. Yeah. And it's, again, with, with total impunity. Yeah. Uh, it, we're talking with Dr. Mary Trump. Uh, and, and, and Mary, we have about a minute and a half here before we hit a hard break. I can't control them. I'm, I'm, could you tell us about your newsletter, your Substack newsletter, The Good in Us? I, I've subscribed to it since the last time you were on our program. And, and, uh, but, but, you know, tell our listeners and viewers about it. Uh, thanks, Tom. I really appreciate it. I, I took a little bit of time off because the events were just completely crazy. But what I try to do in The Good in Us 
is look at look at current events very honestly and realistically because I think the worst thing we can do is look away. But remind people that there are more of us than there are of them and that even though they come at us with negativity and divisiveness, uh, we cannot lose our humanity. Uh, we cannot become like them. Otherwise, there's really nothing worth fighting for. So I, I just am hoping that we all hang on to the good in us, our kindness, our empathy, um, and, and all of the things that make being human worthwhile. I think that's such an important point, you know, that we not lose sight of our, of our shared humanity, even in the middle of uh, what appears to be kind of political battles and things. Uh, the website for that, by right. the way, is marytrump.substack.com. Um, Mary, thanks so much for, for dropping by. Uh, we, just, we just have eight seconds here, but thanks so much for dropping by and, and for the great work you're doing and for your, your most recent book, The Reckoning, the serious work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Mary, Dr. Mary L. Trump, her, her uh, Substack newsletter, marytrump.substack.com. Uh, she's the author of the new book, The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal, and of course, her earlier book, Too Much and Never Enough. We'll be back with more of the news of the day. And I got to tell you about my rant for today, addressed to millennials across the United States. Stick around. Also, anytime throughout the day, if you want to call and share any observations, thoughts, rants, comments, whatever it may be about the hearings, we've been all kind of processing and digesting what happened and, and what we saw and what we heard and and what it means. I think that Americans are beginning to realize, and the New York Times really pointed this out a couple of days ago in, in their poll showing that uh, Republican support for Donald Trump is beginning to hemorrhage, which I've been predicting now for a year. I, I just don't think you can get away with these kind of grifts. You can't get away with trying to tear down the country and you know, overturn a, a free and fair election and lie to millions of people. You just can't do that you know, with impunity without having some kind of consequence. By the way, uh, the inflation, the inflation report just came out this morning. We're pushing 9% here on inflation now. And uh, President Biden just issued a statement that this number is terrible, but it's from a month ago. And it does not reflect the fact that prices have been going down, uh, particularly fuel prices, which is what drives so much of the rest of inflation. So, you know, uh, let's not get hysterical and take it with a grain of salt. Uh, Mary in Sunrise Beach, Missouri. Hey, Mary, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching Free Speech. Oh, I'm so glad you guys took my call so fast. My theory is Merrick Garland is a very slow and steady as he goes kind of guy. And there are, you know, countless crimes that, you know, Mr. Trump has committed. But I think Merritt is going for the bullseye. They can't take him down for treason because that has to be against a foreign country. But There's he sedition. can be taken down. Sedition. Exactly. And I think Merrick Garland is keeping his cards very close to his vest because I think he wants that guy in prison for 20 years. I hope you're right, Mary. And the I, thing that alarmed me I, I is... Believe that in the, I believe that. As a lawyer, I believe that in my heart. 
But the, here's the thing that concerned me, and that, that is that the Justice Department uh, was asking the January 6th committee for their transcripts. In other words, the Justice Department is not interviewing these people who, who, would, who are indicting Trump. How, how you know what? You know what? We actually don't know what's be going on behind closed doors. You know what I'm true. saying? That's true. You have so you to, think the you wheels of justice are grinding slowly but quietly? There, yeah. Slow and steady wins the race. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Well, let's hope that you're right, Mary. I'm still skeptical, and, but I'm... I swear to God... That is what's going to happen. Merrick Garland's the guy to do it. We'll see. We'll see. Mary, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. This is going to be a little longer than normal rant. I'm going to start it right now and I'm going to finish it on the other side of the break and then I'll pick up your phone calls in about maybe 10, 12 minutes. But my rant today over at Hartman Report is, is quite comprehensive. <laughs> it's titled, Dear Millennials, I'm Sorry We Didn't Stop Them. And the thing that got me started on this was the statistic that came out of the, uh, uh, the Fed. The, the, the US, you know, the Federal Reserve Board or bank. And it is that in the millennial generation and the boomer generation are about the same size right now. The millennial generation is actually just a little bit larger than the boomer generation because boomers are dying off and millennials are just now hitting their 40s. So 
or getting into their 40s. But when the boomer generation was in their 30s, back in 1990, when the boomers were in their 30s, in their late 30s in 1990, and I'm a member of that generation, our generation held 21.3% of the nation's wealth, according to the Federal Reserve Bank. 21.3%. Boomers held one-fifth of the wealth in America when we were in our 30s. Today, millennials are in their 30s and early 40s, and millennials, and, and it's this, roughly the same number of people, and millennials hold only 4.6% of the nation's wealth. 21% versus 4.6. It's about a four to one ratio. Millennials have about one quarter the, the wealth that my generation did when we were the age that mo most millennials are right now, the, the, the median age of millennials. How do we get here? What happened? What brought this about? In a word, Republicans. Now, I'll acknowledge that they got a little help from, from you know, a number of Democrats. But at the bottom, of, the bottom line here, the, the basis of this whole thing, what drove this train was the Reagan revolution. It's very simple, very straightforward. And it's happened on a whole bunch of levels. The first was wages. First, the Republicans came for your wages. And the way that they did that was in state after state, passing right to work for less laws so that employers could screw unions. You know, basically blowing up the Federal National Labor Relations Act and allowing individual employers to, bottom line, just screw the unions. That was wages, that was number one. I've got numbers, what, two through seven? Coming up on the other side of the break and then I'll take your calls, stick around. So what happened to the millennial generation and also the Zoomers, you know, Gen Z, people younger than the millennials now? Well, number one, as I mentioned, wages. The Republican Party came for your wages. In the 1990s, the right to work, so-called right to work movement, I call it the right to work for less movement, uh, really started picking up steam. They, the, in 1996, the National Right to Work Committee was created, a, you know, a, kind of a coalition of businesses, and they started pushing this legislation in state after state. It was legalized in 1947. There was a two-year period when Republicans controlled Congress in the 1940s. It was the only two years between 1932 and I believe the early, the mid-60s that the Republicans controlled both houses of Congress. But it was in 1947, they passed Taft-Hartley, which gave the states the ability to change their laws so that, they, so that employers could screw unions. And every single right to work for less state right now got their right to work for less laws under a Republican administration. If you look at a map, what you'll see is that the entire West Coast and the entire East Coast north of the slave states, north of the Mason-Dixon line, is, is still you know, a, pl a place where you can have a union. But the rest of the country, by and large, is right to work for less. So number one, you know, we saw that. And, and it's just decimated unions. When my dad was, uh, you know, my dad's generation, the 1940s, 80% of workers who petitioned for a union got one. In 1990, my generation, 56% of workers who petitioned for a union got one. I was not able to find numbers. I spent a half hour looking for this yesterday as I was writing this op-ed yesterday afternoon. Uh, I was not able to find numbers on what percentage of workers who want a union now get one. 
if they're out there, they're well buried. But I guarantee it's a hell of a lot lower than 56%. So number one, they came for your wages. Then they came for your right to get an education. Before Reagan became governor of California, the entire University of California system was free. Reagan, as governor, did away with that, saying that he didn't want to uh, sponsor intellectual curiosity of the brats who protest by policies. Then when he became president, he did the same thing at a federal level, cutting federal and ultimately state, as a consequence, support for tuition. When Reagan came into office in 1980, 80% of the cost of college was paid for by state and federal government. 80%. 20% was covered by tuition. So, you know, I, I didn't graduate from college, but the, the brief time that I went to college, I, you know, I paid my way through college working as a dishwasher at Bob's Big Boy and pumping gas at an Esso station. My wife, Louise, who actually did graduate from college, um, put herself through college working as a waitress at, at Howard Johnson's. And, you know, riding her bike to work. I mean, this is, this is, you know, what you can do. My mom paid her way through four years of MSU, graduated magna cum laude uh, in the 1940s, working a summer job as a lifeguard in Charlevoix, Michigan, where she grew up. I mean, that you could do that back then. Now you've got to get, you know, $100,000 in student debt. So now, you know, your right to a, an education was taken away by Republicans. Then they went after the entrepreneurs. This is the story of my life. Louise and I have started seven businesses over the years. One of them went down in flames. Uh, several of them have been very successful. You can't do that anymore. I mean, it's, it's still possible, theoretically, to start a business. But, you know, back in the 60s, when we started our first business, it was 1969, we started our first business. It was in East Lansing. We were right around the corner from uh, Grand River Avenue on um, MIT Avenue, or, I, whatever the MAC Avenue in East Lansing, Michigan, across the street from MSU. Every store all along this, you know, mile long strip of you know, Great River Avenue is the main drag that goes through East Lansing, Michigan. Every store was locally owned. Every business. There was Jacobson's Furniture and, and uh, Johnson's Pharmacy. And I mean, you know, everything was locally owned. I, even the mall out in Okemos, you know, the main anchor of the store was Sears, which was a national chain, but most of the stores were locally owned, the jewelry shops, the, you know, the food shops, the health food stores, everything. Now it's all giant chains. Why? Because in 1983, Ronald Reagan ordered the federal government to stop enforcing the Sherman antitrust law and the other antitrust laws that followed. And here we are. You can't start a business now. You get squashed like a bug. Then they started squeezing you for cash when you got sick or were injured. Medical debt is another burden that the Reagan revolution brought that has destroyed America. America is the only, in fact, it's so bad, a half million Americans every year lose their homes and everything, have to declare bankruptcy because of medical debt. Millions of people have medical debt. Back in the 60s, that first business that Louise and I started in 1969, we had four employees. We provided health care to everybody. My recollection is it cost around 30 or 40 bucks a month. It might have been a little more than that, but it wasn't terrible. Why? Because the law at that time required Blue Cross Blue Shield, who we bought our insurance from, to be a nonprofit. And every one of all three hospitals in Lansing, Ingham Medical, Sparrow, and, Ingham, and uh, St. Lawrence, they were all nonprofits. It was the law. The drug companies were all, you know, there were hundreds of pharmaceutical companies. They were, there, you know, there were a couple of giants, but most of them were small companies and drug prices were under control. 
As the New York Times noted in an article titled Medical Mystery, Something Happened to U.S. Health Spending After 1980, quote, America was in the realm of other countries in per capita health spending throughout, through about, through about 1980. Then it diverged. And then they go on to point out that the same thing happened with, uh, uh, with uh, mortality, with, with lifespan. Life expectancy in 1980, the U.S. was right in the middle of the pack with pure nations, uh, says the New York Times, but, in the, but in the mid, by the mid-2000s, we were at the bottom of the pack. Yes, we have the highest medical expenses in the world uh, among developed nations and the lowest life expectancy. And then the Kaiser Family Foundation points out, we find 23 million people, nearly one in 10 adults, owe significant medical debt. They, uh, people in the United States owe at least $195 billion in medical debt. And then if the Republicans hadn't you know, nailed the millennials, uh, speaking to you millennials, if, if the Republicans hadn't nailed you in all the, those regards that I've just mentioned, you know, education, wages, health care, they figured out a way to go after your need for a roof over your house. In the 1990s, as part of Gingrich's contract on America, Congress deregulated the financial services industry. You know, and, and thus, now we've got giant corporations, hedge funds, banks, buying, and in some cases, you know, 10, 15, 20% of the housing stock in some towns. And what do they do? They buy them, and then they rent them out. So the price of housing goes through the roof because there's fewer houses available to buy, so people are bidding up prices because of demand, and they're raising rent. The Wall Street Journal just last year did a piece where they documented how in, in Spring Hill, this is a, a suburb in um, Nashville, the average rent for a, for a three-bedroom house was around $1,000 a month. Wall Street came in, bought up hundreds of houses, and within a year, the average rent was $1,700 a month. It's amazing. I mean, you know, just stripping these neighborhoods. And then, you know, the Republicans came after your wealth in a huge way. They cut the top tax rate on billionaires from 74% down to 27%. Reagan did that. Cut corporate taxes from 50% to practically nothing. So that today, one-fiftieth, 2%, one-fiftieth of all millennial wealth in America is held by one millennial, Mark Zuckerberg. One-fiftieth of all the millennial wealth in this country. The average billionaire now pays less than 3% as an income tax rate. And the average corporation, at least the big ones, pays nothing. In fact, they're getting money back. And where are they getting that money from? Your and my taxes. This is a 42-year-long process that started with Ronald Reagan, and it has produced a $50 trillion transfer of wealth from the working class of America to the top 1%. 50 friggin' trillion dollars. When Reagan was elected, there wasn't a single billionaire in America. Now we're producing them like popcorn. And I, I mean, I, you know, it just it goes on and on and on. It's uh, don't get me started about the Republicans right across the board denying climate change. Uh, you know, so that so as they take their money from the fossil fuel industry, um, it, the, the like Russia and Hungary, they're they're trying to overturn the right to abortion. And did I mention 400 million guns? And then this morning, Republican Senator John Cornyn comes out and says, no, we're not going to do anything more about guns. No, not a chance. Sorry. You know, I'm embarrassed to say this, but my generation, the boomers, did this to your generation, millennials and Zoomers. 
and Gen X too uh, has, has uh, been the victims of this. Now, the good news is that boomers and millennials are getting together. You got Bernie Sanders and Sam Lawrence. Uh, well, actually, Sherrod Brown, just, you know, Senator Sherrod Brown from Ohio just endorsed Sam Lawrence. Sam was on this program just a month or so ago. He's 19 years old. He's running for the Ohio State House, a progressive Democrat. So the boomer generation and the millennial and Zoomer generations are getting together politically. I'm hopeful as a result of that. How about you? I'll pick up your calls after the break. Russ in Pacifica, California. Hey, Russ, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I wanted to know, and I'm sure you've answered this question before, do you really think we're going to see the former president get serious criminal charges? Like, at the end of the day, is this really going to happen? And I just wanted to know what you I mean, nobody really knows. But yeah. I wanted to know. How I think it's very that. likely that he'll face serious charges. I think it's very unlikely that he'll go to jail, in part because he'll probably be able to string out legal processes until the day he dies. The guy's in his late 70s and, and you know, he eats, a, shall we say, a high cholesterol diet and he's morbidly obese. So whether he'll actually ever see a day inside a jail cell is problematic. But I, th- I think he's going to face some serious charges. Awesome. And I'm a millennial. I wanted to just very briefly. One thing I see going around are these TikTok videos kind of making fun of Gen Zers or the Zoomer generation, I guess. And mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, like a guy walks by a door if you're, you know, and you bump your shoulder, you don't say anything. But if you're Generation Z, you lie on the floor crying about bumping your shoulders, that kind of stuff. That's cruel. I hate it. I, it yeah. drives me nuts because never once did I ever go to school thinking I could possibly get shot in the face. Like Columbine happened when I was a senior in high school. Right. And never did I ever go to school having that thought cross my mind. And I just can't imagine how terrifying that must be for all of these kids. That's an excellent so I point. Think, and I think millennials and older, we should all be sympathetic for this younger generation. Because as you're saying, like as we've gotten older and as time has gone on, it's the younger generations have gotten the shorter end of the stick. And that's yep. gotten shorter and shorter. And now they're getting shot in the face. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's terrible, and now we're making fun of them for kind of, I don't know what kind of mental impact that has on a person. I'm not a psychologist, a psychologist but I'm sure that's part I of it. I think it's called PTSD. It's called trauma. And, I mean, you know, yeah. one of the, and speaking of shot in the face, that's not just a, a figure of speech. One of the kids in Uvalde had half his head blown off by a single bullet. Yeah, these, I mean, these kids were blown to pieces with these hollow point shells bullets getting fired through AR-15s are meant to explode on impact. And you're talking about a little six-year-old body. I have two kids myself, so it's like, yeah, it's pretty horrible. It's unimaginable. It is absolutely unimaginable. Russ, do you think that your generation is starting to get politically active? Starting to get more politically active? Yeah. My brother, who's only two years younger than me, he's he has not really paid attention to anything. I've been on top of this stuff. I, I wanted to be a poli-sci major, but yeah, I think more and more people are waking up to it. Yeah. That's good news. Russ, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear hey, from you. Thank you for what you do. Yeah, thank you're you. welcome.
quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. On the line with us is our buddy, Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books, and the most recent, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, also available as an e-book. Uh, rdwolf.com as well as democracyatwork.info. Prof Wolf with two Fs on Twitter. Professor Wolf, welcome back. We, we talked some, oh geez, it seems like it was months ago, maybe even a half a year ago, about quantitative easing. And now there's multiple stories. There was one yesterday or the day before in the Financial Times. Uh, there have been a couple of others uh, talking about uh, quantitative tightening, essentially. Um, I think it's probably useful to revisit exactly what quantitative easing and tightening are. They sound all technical, but, but I, you know, I realize that you, you, you can boil this down fairly, in a fairly straightforward fashion. And how that's going to affect us, how that's going to affect our economy and the average American. Okay, uh, start with the reality that our capitalist economic system is extremely unstable. Uh, every four to seven years, it has a bust. It goes down, suddenly large numbers of people are thrown out of work, many small and medium-sized businesses and a few big ones uh, go belly up, et cetera, et cetera. We have really bad months, and then eventually we come out of it and we go back up, uh, and then the great danger becomes the other extreme. As we go up, oh boy, could we have an inflation. And, and we're literally going through it now. Uh, the year 2020 was a terrible crash of our economy, part of which you can blame on COVID, part of which it's one of the every four to seven year downturns and should have surprised really nobody. And now we're coming out of it. And yeah, once again, we're faced with the other extreme, an explosive inflation. I might mention that the 
data released by the government this morning indicates that our inflation is now even higher than the last time you and I spoke, currently running at over 9 and 9.1%, with wages going up much less quickly, which means American workers are falling behind. Well, here comes the, the solution, if you like. You can't fix it. The system is inherently unstable. So you have a monetary authority. In other countries, it's called the central bank. We have this funny name, Federal Reserve. But the job of the Federal Reserve is basically to offset the instability. When the economy goes down, do something to bring it back up. And when the economy overheats into inflation, do something to slow it down. That's what the Federal Reserve does. And the something it does is very simple. When the economy goes down, it's called quantitative easing. It pumps money into the economy and it lowers the interest rate. And that's what we had mostly for the first 20 years uh, of this new century. And it does that by buying bonds and stocks, right? That, buying assets. Doesn't. There's many ways. It lowers the interest rate. It charges to banks who can go directly to the Federal Reserve to borrow. And yes, it enters the market for all kinds of securities, treasury securities. But things have gotten so unstable that the Federal Reserve in recent years has also gone in and purchased uh, private industrial bonds, buying and selling to manipulate interest rates down. That's called quantitative easing. When you have an inflation the way we do now, they do the reverse. In other words, it's called quantitative tightening. They pull money out of the economy and they raise the interest rates. And by the way, given today's numbers of 9.1%, it's certain that later this month they will raise interest rates again. Really, the only question is, will it be half a point, three quarters of a point? Or if they're really spooked, they may do a, an entire a single point, which is very rare and shows how anxiety-ridden they are. Now, how does it affect us? Well, quantitative tidying means there's less money around, less money being spent. It's going to be harder for businesses to find customers. For all of those of us with debts, mortgage debt, car debt, credit card debt, and student loan debt, if we're about to borrow money, it's going to be much more expensive to do that. It means all kinds of young people will decide they cannot afford a higher education, which is terrible for our economy's future. All kinds of people will discover their monthly credit card bill is higher, even though they haven't spent any more, because the interest rate that's buried in there has been raised. So what you're doing is trying to slow the inflation by making it harder and harder for people to afford to buy stuff. And the idea is that will persuade the sellers, the employer class of our country, it'll hopefully persuade them not to jack up the prices the way they've been doing because people will be unable to afford it. But notice that all the work, all the pain, all the suffering, 
in order to try to control this unstable economy is being most heavily put on low and medium income people, the majority of our people. The business community hopes to get through all of this with a minimum of their suffering. It is a continuation of something I don't believe is politically sustainable. You cannot continue to whack your working class with COVID, with a crash, now with an inflation, and now again with raising interest rates, you're doing too many damaging things to the mass of our people in too short a period of time. And that becomes pathological. It becomes an excuse. It's too much pressure. Those who have their own mental and other problems will crack. It's too hard. And you should not do that. And yet nobody is paying attention. The politicians run to stay in office. The big businesses are simply pushing to get more profits. As long as that happens and we continue down this road, I am extremely fearful. And listening to the psychologist you were just reading from, it's just a one-two punch that ought to wake everybody up. Yeah, amen. So uh, we had, uh, in 1999, uh, the, uh, the Gingrich Revolution. <laughs> to the four, Phil Graham and Newt Gingrich and all these guys, uh, and and Bill Clinton signed it. I mean, you know, we have to acknowledge that. But you know, pushed through this uh, ending Glass-Steagall, and which set up, arguably, the the, the great crash of 2008, which happened uh, on on George Bush's uh, George W. Bush's last year. The the market just collapsed. Millions of Americans lost their homes. Everything went to hell. The Fed stepped in and began the quantitative easing that you were just describing and started pouring money into the economy. And and uh, so would you describe would you say that it's accurate to say that during the eight years then of the Obama administration and the four years of the Trump administration, that we were basically living on an artificial sugar high and that now they're taking the sugar away? I mean, how, how much of the prosperity of those Obama and Trump years is attributable not to the normal growth of an economy and and you know healthy things in in international trade or whatever it may be, but but simply to the fact that the Fed was pouring uh, pouring gasoline and uh, you know on this on this little fire here, and 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 I ask that because I think from the answer to that you might be able to infer how much of a pullback we might see if they stop doing that. Absolutely. There is no question. I don't believe any serious economist, left winger, right winger or in the middle uh, would dispute the fact that under the Obama administration and, you know, part of Bush and certainly under Trump, the Federal Reserve was looked upon as the key agency to keep the system from imploding the way it did in those final four months of 2008 and into 2009. The country was desperate. The people who ran this society, certainly the people who gathered every night, late into the night, and I know some of them personally, in the offices of the Federal Reserve Bank in New York City, desperately yelling at one another to try to figure out how to keep the system from literally collapsing, they they were constantly saying to each other, yeah, there are long-term dangers here, but if we don't put out this fire, this collapse, we're not going to have anything to worry about in the future. So get the Federal Reserve in there, pump the money like there's no tomorrow. Tomorrow, if we get that far, we will struggle with the long-term consequences of 
pouring all this money in, but we have no choice. And the people who come, I don't mind saying this, at this late date and wave their finger at the Federal Reserve, oh, you pumped in all that money, are conveniently forgetting the desperate circumstances of the time that led people to do this. In the end, it's not this or that policy that's the mistake. It's that we have a system that isn't working, and we have to sooner or later face that. Otherwise, we will be jerking around, careening around, plugging up this disaster, only to discover that the way we're doing it sets up the next one. And here we are, the inflation offsetting the, the downturn, the extra money now becoming a problem. You, at a certain point, you have to face the deeper issue. Right. History begins to rhyme, uh, to paraphrase uh, Sam Clements, Mark Twain. Uh, Professor Richard Wolf, thanks so much for dropping by and explaining all this so clearly to us. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Good talking with you. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Pick up some of your phone calls here. Let's see. Charles in Portland. Hey, Charles, what's on your mind? Hello, Tom from beautiful Portland. How are you doing today? <laughs> Fine. What's on your mind? Hey, I wanted to talk with you about the churches and the contributions to politics and everything. I think, you know, I hate saying it all goes back, but it all goes back to Citizens United. If corporations and uh, political speech is money, uh, these churches, they're all registered as 501c3 corporations. They should not be able to contribute money. They have the, the freedom of the pulpit, you know, free speech and everything. That's much more difficult to control, but it seems like for the Catholic Church or any church to be dumping hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars into anything just seems wrong, just as wrong as it is for Apple to do it or IBM or Westinghouse or anybody else. And Excellent it point. goes back, unless you can fix Citizens United, there's no way that uh, that it's going to stop the flow of the money. And that's never going to happen because the people who are putting the money in are the ones controlling the terms of the debate. It's just, it's agonizing. Yeah, I'm with you. Charles, thank you. Uh, excellent point. Patrick in East Lansing, Michigan, watching us on Facebook Live. Hey, Patrick, what's up? Hi, Tom. I liked your rant and I liked your talk with um, Professor Wolf, but I have to disagree with you and I don't do it lightly. And it's not because any of your facts were wrong. I thought your facts were spot on. My disagreement is that I don't think a generation of people gets to be blamed for the wealth inequality of the millennials. And I also don't think it's correct, as you said flat out straight up, that it's the Republicans and Reagan who did it. And here's my argument. Gary Gersel at Oxford has just written a book, The Rise of the Neoliberal Order, and he's tacking straight and hard onto what Lily Geismer said in Left Behind. These are the two books that basically make the argument that the Democrats under Clinton and under Obama 
were more important or equally important with Reagan in all of the trends that you talked about. And you just mentioned it with Glass-Steagall, and you, you know, honestly said that Clinton was responsible for no, that. No, Clinton wasn't responsible for it. He didn't even propose it. He signed the legislation. And he, this is he, the point, Patrick. If Reagan hadn't been elected, we probably would not have had this kind of neoliberalism. I mean, that was my point. Certainly, there have been a lot of Democratic enablers throughout the years, and Bill Clinton is right at the top of that list. And Barack Obama comes in talk, for criticism, too. Let's talk realistically about the facts on the ground. It was, it was Robert Rubin and Larry Summers who proposed Glass-Steagall and shut down the Commodities Regulation Chair and the banker's book by the MIT economist, 13 Bankers, lays out how Clinton spearheaded Glass-Steagall. So you mean the end of Glass-Steagall. And then if you fast forward to what happened after they blew up the economy with it, because he signed it during the recount, the Bush-Gore recount, December 14th of 2000. What Heather McGee says in her book is that after you lost all of those mortgages in Detroit and all those cities and the wealth accumulated as the product of the civil rights revolution took away the wealth of people who had blacks who had it in their houses, the Obama TARP bailout bailed out the banks and didn't bail out the people who lost their mortgages when there was bills on the table to give people back ownership of their homes and give title to the bank and make people allowed to stay in their homes for seven years or have right of first refusal, and then mark down the value of their home to the market value. And David Sirota in his meltdown says this is why Trump was elected. So my bottom line is really simply, it's not enough to run against the Republicans, and that's the spine of your narrative. And it's not enough to run against Christian fascism. It's what Alan Minsky, progressive Democrats of America, said yesterday. We have to have an economic bill of rights. We have to fight the fight within the corporate Democratic Party that gave us the neoliberal order. And the last thing I'll say, because Ro Khanna comes on your show, he's right at the lead of this. And he says, why did banks get money at 1.75% and lend it out at 30% with no caps, impoverishing America with predatory lending? Yep. And that's what's happening to the millennials, and the Democrats did it. I'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying, Patrick. The point that I would make is that there is coming, no solution is coming from the Republicans on this. And you've got a lot of Democrats who are pointing out what you were just saying. Thank you. Brian in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Brian, what's on your mind today? Yeah, you started off the show talking about how the uh, the economic status of the baby boomers versus the Gen Z and what they're living with. Uh, actually, and, not Gen Z. It was uh, millennials. Millennials. Okay, yeah. excuse me. I get mixed up. I'm the tail end of the baby boomers. I'm a 61, so I think I qualify. But anyway, um, you know, we got to remember that when our economic and political leaders got on this globalization kick... They put the American working class in direct competition with billions of Asians working for $2 a day. And, and Central, South and Central Americans as well. Yeah. And Bill Clinton was wrong. Bill Clinton You're right. did that. You're absolutely right. He was wrong. And I'm waiting for Bill Clinton to write that book that says, I was wrong. I, I am and too. But, but let's keep in mind, Brian, that NAFTA was not negotiated by Bill Clinton. NAFTA was negotiated. Uh, the, the initial negotiations were started in the last two years of the Reagan administration. The entire deal was negotiated by George Herbert Walker Bush as president. You'll recall in the, in the big debates in the 1992 election, 
where he had Ross Perot in there, he took 20% of the vote. He was opposed to NAFTA specifically because the Bush administration was saying, George Bush was saying, if I get reelected, I'm going to sign this. And Bill Clinton was saying, I will too. And so, you know, they were in it together. But the bottom line is this was a Republican project. Right. And, but I like to put the focus on China. China's going to be the world's largest economy in, what, five or ten years? Probably one or Unpre two. Unprecedented territory. And, you know, Bill Clinton gave China WTO. He didn't have to. That's right. He gave them, he gave them most favored nation trading status. Yep. He didn't have to. Yep. He could have negotiated for better deals for the American worker. But no, he listened to Robert Rubin and all the other Wall Street gurus and, you know, all the other clan, the crowd. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Brian. Bill Clinton went wrong. along with this Republican plan. I, I, you know, the Democrats are not blameless in this. It's just that this was not their, uh, you know, this is not something that they started. It wasn't a road that they wanted to go down. Um, but, yeah, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama as well, you know, embraced it. And, uh, you know, I'm very glad to see that now we've got uh, Joe Biden, by and large, embracing Bernie Sanders' legislation. Bill Back Better came out of Bernie. Uh, George in uh, Rotunda, West Florida. Hey, George, what's up? Hey, Tom. I want to give you an update on what's going on with the VA healthcare system. Okay. You know, the uh, secretary of the VA, he's not a veteran. He's a money manager who's trying to save money for the uh, VA. Is he a uh, Biden appointee or is he a leftover from Trump? No, he's a Biden. Okay. I'm a Biden supporter. I'm a progressive. I'm a baby boomer. I was one of the first baby boomers, October 46, when my dad came back from World War II. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, there's 50,000 unfilled jobs at the VA, and they're not doing anything about it. That's not good. Talk to doctors and nurses and aides at the VA constantly, and the process to get hired there is nine months to a year. So the people can't wait. You know, they coming out of college, they need a job. Right. So the VA is not a good choice. So that needs to stop. And then the, the choice program, you know, under Trump, the first year, they gave billions of dollars to a private company to manage the choice program. Well, that company did nothing. They called nobody. They kept the money. They reinvested it, billions with a B. So they demolished that company, and then they went to a second company and gave them billions of dollars. So there's billions of dollars missing from the VA budget, at the, and the veterans are, are suffering from it. Give you one example, travel pay. The VA, I've had 14 visits to VA hospitals and clinics. I'm a 100% disabled Vietnam veteran, sprayed with Agent Orange four times. You know, out of 280 guys in my unit, four of us still alive. Whoa. And uh, I'm lucky to be alive. Yeah. But the, uh, they haven't paid travel pay in nine months. Now, it's not good. I get what you're saying. And suggestions for lobbying? Call our members of Congress and raise hell? Is that is that the point you want to make? Well, I've been doing that day in and day out. It does no good. Well, let's get a whole bunch of other people on board with you to do it. Thank you, George. Don in uh, Wheaton, Illinois. Hey, Don, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hi, Tom. I wanted to bring up the fact that Bill Clinton seems to have a different take on stacking the court, what happened in the past. When he was asked by a journalist about stacking the court, he said, well, Franklin Roosevelt tried it, and it didn't work out too well for him. 
That's horse, yeah, horse pucky. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's he's, he's, he's historically ignorant if he believes that. Yeah, it's, it would be a corporate memo or something, you know, like this is how to respond if somebody says that. Yeah. I would think. Yeah. What happened was Franklin Roosevelt proposed expanding the court, and the result of that was that the court backed down. They stopped, you know, they, they, were, they were blowing up right. the New Deal left and right. They, they had voted against him two or three times in, in 1936. And in 1937, when he won re-election, he came in and he said, okay, we're going to expand the court. And all of a sudden, the court was like, oh, oh no problem. We're with you. That seems to me like yeah, a victory. Yeah, I remember you telling us that. And also, I wanted to mention something interesting about when, uh, when he was leaving the office uh, and handing over power to uh, Bush, they had like a press conference where the outgoing president gets up and says, yeah, well, things were wonderful under me, you know, and I'm leaving you with a surplus and it's a, a wonderful day, you know. And I was feeling that, you know, but mm -hmm. then uh, George Bush gets up and remember he had, uh, you know, had that interview where he was going to be a wartime president and get capital, uh, you know, political capital. Yeah, that was Mickey Herskowitz. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, he gets up and he says, well, I, I see a very dark future for America. I mean, you can go back and watch this. Really? <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and I, I had a dark feeling coming over me. <laughs> wow. I don't remember that. That's fascinating. It'd be interesting to track down the video on that. Yeah. George, it, George they, Bush they channeling his inner Stephen Miller. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. The other day, you know, uh, he... he uh, commented, uh, you know, he, he couldn't be quiet, so he got in front of his library and started uh, talking about uh, what what an awful thing it was that Putin attacked Ukraine mm -hmm. for no reason at all. But uh, all the things that he said about it were exactly true of him in Iraq. And sure enough, at the end of his line, he said, uh, you know, uh, he attacked uh, in Iraq. Right, he misspoke. Yeah, he yeah, yeah that was that was a major faux pas. And then and then he made try to make a joke out of it about how old he's getting or something like that. That's a good one. Dan, yeah. thank you. Thank you for that. Sam in Providence, Rhode Island. Hey Sam, thanks for listening to Sirius XM. What's up? Hey. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, sure. I was when you were talking about uh, the Catholic Church dumping all that money into the Kansas race. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Michigan one. To me. Yeah. Uh, and something occurred to me, while they're vociferous about their uh, demands that, you know, the fetus is alive and anti-abortion, mm -hmm. the Catholic Church will not uh, baptize stillborn children because they haven't drawn their first breath. Is it because they haven't drawn their first breath or because they're dead? Uh, well, I think that I've, I think that's part and parcel of it, but it seems like they, it seems like they are acting as if, you know, the child in the womb uh, isn't actually, you know, fully human or, or worthy of being baptized, unless, of course, abortion is involved. Hmm. Yeah, it, it may be, you know, there, there may be an issue of hypocrisy there. I, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, though, that it's more, I mean, assuming that what you're saying is true, um, which just makes sense. That, I mean, why would you baptize uh, something that's dead. I mean, it's just, it, 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 I'm not sure that's quite, quite the indictment that you want it to be, but are you Catholic? Uh, I am not. Okay. All right. Um, fascinating. Sam, thank you. Thank you for the call. Nick in South Pasadena. Hey, Nick, we got 30 seconds. What's on your mind? Uh, okay. 
just a comment on the uh, this last caller's comment about Bush's statement that the dark uh, horizon is coming. Mm-hmm. That was in response to Bill Clinton, his outgoing statement saying that everything is fine. We balance the budget. Um, things look good. And, and George uh, Bush's response a day later was, no, there's a, there's a downturn coming. And uh, I don't think it's going to be good. Uh, 1999 uh, or 2000, I, I'm getting I'll have to, I'll have to check it out. Nick, thank you for the call. Thanks for the, for the, for the data. Hey, there's a lot. There's an election coming up. There's a bunch of elections coming up. There's a lot of things happening over the next four or five months that are going to literally determine the fate and future of this country. And you need to be involved. That's what democracy is all about. So get out there, get active, tag your it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. Stay safe. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 